Yes, let's, let's dive in. So the, the, the gospel is the good news about God. And we, and what he has done on our behalf through his son, Jesus Christ. So the gospel starts with God, that God is the holy creator, righteous and good. There's none like him, right? He creates, he creates human beings in his image and that's what sets us apart from everything else that he created, the uniqueness of it, that God has created us in his image after his likeness. And that when we think about our first parents, Adam and Eve, they were chilling with God. They had it made. They had a life free from sin, free from death, free from pain. But we know that the story uh, turns for the worse as man falls, right? As Adam and Eve were lured to believe that God was not enough. Lured to believe that what they had with God in the garden, the fellowship, the shalom, the peace, and everything else, that that wasn't enough and that they sinned against him. They disobeyed a direct command that God had given them, sinning against him, and then as a result, receiving the judgment due to their sin. Judgment that all of us and every person who has been born since is faced to reckon with if they do not turn to Christ. So then Christ, he's God's son. This is the Lord Jesus Christ sent from the Father to, uh, man, to really reverse the destruction uh, that Adam and Eve uh, set us on, set us on the path towards. So where Adam disobeyed, Jesus fully obeyed God, living a life free from sin, perfectly obeying every command that was given by God, and then dying a death on the cross in our place and rising from the dead on the third day so that we might be able to know God and enjoy him forever. So then the response to that, the response to that is repentance and faith. Repentance meaning to, to turn away from sin and uh, faith meaning to turn to God in trust, in hope, in belief, in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, this, even, this is the gospel, right? This is the gospel that all of us here have received and have believed by God's grace. This was the best news that all of us could ever hear and accept. This is the best news that every sinner, when they hear, and by God's grace, when they accept it, it's the best news. This is the message that God calls every Christian, every church to proclaim to then center our lives on it, to cherish it, and to stand on it as our only hope. Amen? As our only hope. This is the message that Paul, in our passage this evening, was made a minister for. So let's now turn our attention to our passage this evening. So if you have a Bible, 
Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 3. We'll be looking at verses 7 through 13. We've got time together this evening. And as you turn there or as you scroll there on your mobile device or whatever, let me, let me ask God for his help. So let me pray. Father, I do just that. I ask you for your help, Lord, uh, in this time. Um, God, I, I need you uh, to speak. Um, I need you to work. I need you to, uh, by your word and by your spirit, do the work in all of our hearts this evening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So if you're already there, so Ephesians 3, starting at verse 7, reads this. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This, excuse me, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So last week, if you were here in our time together, you remember that we looked at verses one through six of chapter three. From our time together, we learned that living for Jesus and proclaiming his gospel will cost us as it cost Paul. But the reward in the end will be worth it, right? Because we get God. We get God. We also learned that God has given every Christian stewardship of the gospel. Uh, that the gospel isn't just for the pastor or the evangelist to proclaim. No, every Christian, no matter if you serve in ministry uh, or, or not, has been given a responsibility to share the gospel. So we looked at that last week, that all Christians have been given, given a stewardship to proclaim the gospel. And, 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 not only, amen, and not only are we responsible for sharing it, we're also responsible for guarding it. Amen? We, as a church, are responsible for sharing the good news, but we're also responsible for guarding it. So if anybody is, is, is teaching anything funny or teaching anything that's in opposition to the gospel, we as a church need to combat that with the truth of God's word in love, in grace, in truth. And so we are also called to guard the gospel, to guard doctrine. Then finally, we learned that the mystery of the gospel that God has kept hidden for so long is right in verse 6. So look back with me in verse 6. What does it say? It says, look back up a couple of verses. It says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul makes it clear that Jews and Gentiles have become one family through the gospel. And he picks up on the gospel and its implications 
in verse 7 of our passage this evening. So if you're taking notes this evening, whether on your phone or writing somewhere, the main idea of our passage is this. God calls pastors to serve him and his church by preaching Christ so that God's wisdom is made known through the church. Once again, God calls pastors to serve him and his church by preaching Christ so that God's wisdom is made known through the church. So I just have two points for us this evening. Here they are. If you're taking notes, point one, God's plan for the pastor. We'll see that in verses seven through nine. So one, God's plan for the pastor. Now, I don't want anybody to check out this evening and think this is a sermon only for pastors because it's not. Uh, there's plenty of wisdom in this passage for those of us here who aren't pastors or who have never served as pastors or who either desire or don't desire to be or serve in plenty of other ways that bless the church. So I want you to not check out. This isn't a message just for pastors. And to use a quick example, think about the passages regarding the qualifications for elders, right? Um, and deacons and deaconesses, right? So 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. The majority of the qualifications mentioned in those passages have to do with character. They have to do with character. So from both passages, all Christians can learn and grow in what it means to have godly character. All right? So that's point one. Here's point two. God's plan for the church. We'll see that in verses 10 through 13. So point two, God's plan for the church, 10 through 13. So point one, God's plan for the pastor, uh, verses 7 through 9. Look back with me at verses 7 through 9. Here's what it says. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God, who created all things. So in this section of the passage, we'll see four important characteristics about God's plan for the pastor. All right, four characteristics. Taking notes, here they are. One, calling. Two, character. Three, Christ as his message. Four, cost. All right, once again. One, calling, two, character, three, Christ as his message, and then four, cost. So let's look at the first characteristic, calling. Notice in verse seven that Paul says, of this gospel, I was made a minister. I like how the Christian Standard Bible uh, translates this verse. It says, I was made a servant of the gospel, or the New Living Translation of the Africa Study Bible puts it this way. I have been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. I, I, I like all three of those translations. I mean, the one we're in right now with ESV and those two translations. But I want you to notice something crucial about all three of these translations. They all point out that Paul was made a minister. He was made a minister. So key word, made. Minister here is just another word for pastor. Paul didn't make himself a pastor or a minister. 
He was made a pastor or a minister. How? How was this possible? Well, if you keep following in the text, look what comes next in the same verse in verse seven. It says, how according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me to Paul by the working of his power, not Paul's power, but God's power. So Paul doesn't take any credit in becoming a minister of the gospel. No, he gives all the credit to God as it should be. Listen to how God was active in all of this. So he made Paul a minister according to his grace, which he gave to Paul by the working of his power. You see how heavily involved God was in making Paul a minister? And this is true for me and, and every other gospel preaching pastor in this city and across the world. Pastors are called by God. They are made by God. Nowadays, you can become a pastor online. I kid you not. You, can, you probably have seen it, but that you can go online and you can uh, fill out necessary paperwork and become an ordained minister uh, right online. I mean, what can you not get on the internet these days? Here's a quote from uh, getordained.org. Listen to this quote real quick as I get to it. It says this, it says, the universal life church accepts anyone, regardless of their particular denomination. The church believes anyone should have the right to become ordained as a minister and captain their own spiritual ship, no matter what their specific beliefs may be. Many people would like to become ordained but are concerned it is too long of a process or that they will be rejected because they aren't religious enough. Thankfully, this isn't something you need to worry about with the Universal Life Church. If you are looking to become a minister but don't want to go through the lengthy process, then get ordained. Service is the perfect solution for you. So you see that. And so, so becoming an ordained minister literally at your fingertips, right? Literally at your fingertips. But this isn't the way of Scripture. This isn't the way of the Bible. And it's problematic. And goes against what we see here in this passage as we see that Paul made, uh, that God made Paul a minister. And we see this in other places of Scripture. But that God calls the pastor. But then I want you uh, to, to know another important factor is that we can't forget, okay, so God makes the pastor or God calls the pastor, but other faithful elders, maybe the pastor's sending church and the congregation affirm the pastor's calling. They affirm the pastor's calling, right? So it's what we believe the scriptures teach that a pastor is called internally and externally. God calls the pastor internally, but the church affirms God's calling on the pastor externally. For example, again, think back on the character giftings, or sorry, the character and gifting qualities listed in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1 for elders, right? How can a person affirm and hold himself accountable to those qualities alone. 
How can, when we look at 1 Timothy 3, and when we look at Titus 1, how can a pastor affirm those qualities, character traits, alone? He can't. He needs the church. He needs the church. He needs other godly men and women to speak into uh, what he believes and what they all believe God is at work in his life and calling him to the ministry, but that he uh, is being affirmed by those brothers and sisters that God is calling him to the ministry. That's why Paul tells Timothy, and, and by the way, he's the pastor at Ephesus, so he's the pastor of the Ephesian church, where we're at in the book of Ephesians, right? To have deacons and deaconesses tested first before serving. So listen to 1 Timothy 3.10. Here's what it says. It said, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Right? So you see that? That deacons and deaconesses are to be tested first before serving. And it's the same with elders. There's a calling and an affirmation process that takes place before serving. Amen? So lastly in this section on calling, I want to point out another crucial aspect. Notice once again in verse 7 that Paul was made a minister, right? We've been looking at that. We've been seeing that in the text. And the other translations we looked at says servant or we've been given a privilege of serving him. I want to point out something else that's, that's, I think, really crucial. I listened to a sermon earlier this week um, by a pastor named Brian Loritz. I don't know, show of hands if you ever heard of Brian Loritz. Anybody know? Some people? Okay. Uh, he's a pastor that I would encourage you to check out. So he's, he's currently on staff at the Summit Church in Durham, North Carolina. He's served at other churches before and things along those lines. Um, he's written some different books and things along those lines. Uh, Faithful Brother. Um, Man, it was such a banging sermon. Sermon. If you, if you have a, a time this week, check it out on the Summit podcast. But it was on identity. It was on identity. Uh, our identity being in Christ. So he talks about this from another one of Paul's letters. Uh, but in a similar vein, we see Paul telling us where his identity really is, don't we? He says he is a servant of Christ. He has been called to Christ first. And the same is true for us who know God this evening. That we have been, whether you serve as a pastor, whether you serve in whatever ministry, whether you are not in ministry, man, what is true about all of us as Christians is that we have been called to Christ. Our jobs don't make us. He does. So, it, it, it's not really, a, it's not about what we do, it's about whose we are. So in whatever role we're in or whatever role we play, don't, don't forget, don't miss that whatever that is, your identity is ultimately in Christ, regardless. And that, that can't be taken away from you. And that's something that is unshakable and, and cannot Fade and is long lasting. So, uh, your identity is not wrapped up in what you do, as I said, or what you do have or don't have. 
married or not married, children or no children, job or no job, trapping on the block or not trapping on the block, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. None of these things define you, Christian. Jesus defines you. Let that sink in. Rest in that this evening. Is that, I know a lot of us are off tomorrow, but when you, or if you're not off tomorrow, if you do have to go to work tomorrow, or if you, when you go in on Tuesday, or clock in from the crib and you're at home, I know we're still in the pandemic, be reminded that your identity is in Christ first. No matter if you have a good day or a bad day, no matter if your job sucks or, or is great, your identity is in Christ. And that's what's most important about you and what is most dear and something to cherish that your identity is in him. So as I said before, rest in that this evening. Rest in the season God has you in. That may change, but won't, what, excuse me, but what won't change is your identity in Christ. It's secure, it's immovable, unshakable, unwavering, and nothing can separate you from him and his love. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, so that was, that was calling. Now let's look at character. All right, so look back with me at verse 8. It says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints. Now, something that Paul could have done here is he could have pulled out his resume, right? But he didn't. He could have mentioned that he's an apostle, that he's a church planter, he's a pastor, disciple maker, evangelist, and the list could go on and on and on. Instead, Paul does this. He mentions how unworthy he feels to be a Christian. He doesn't give the resume. He doesn't, he doesn't try to, you know, you know, Instagram, you know, a lot of times we post our best pictures, right? You know, we don't want nobody to see any, any, any flaws or anything along those lines or Facebook or Twitter. Um, man, he, he if, if Instagram was, you know, around then, then Paul would be, he would be showing off his scars. He would be showing off his weaknesses, his imperfections. That's what Paul would do. He's letting us know that he doesn't feel worthy to be a Christian. Now, he could have felt this way because of his former life, right? Because of what he was known for before Jesus saved him. He persecuted Christians. He killed Christians. And then he says in another place of scripture, right, that he considers himself the chief of sinners. Paul was humbled on the road to Damascus. And humility, catch this, has become a lifestyle for him ever since. Humility has become a lifestyle since meeting Christ. So this evening, are you pursuing humility? Are you pursuing godly character this evening? I've heard it said, and you may have heard it said, that humility is not thinking of yourself, excuse me, humility is not uh, thinking of yourself less, uh, it's thinking of yourself less. I think I butchered that. Let me look at my notes. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, excuse me, it's thinking of yourself less, right? So it's not you uh, wallowing in your uh, shame and your guilt, uh, not you know, thinking of yourself like you're, you're less than, you are 
um, unworthy in some ways, or you, you don't deserve this, and this, that, and third, and whatever the case may be, and in some ways that's true, but it's actually thinking of yourself less. It's, it's you not being consumed about yourself all the time. Always thinking about how is Josh looking? How is Josh doing? How is Josh being perceived right now as he's preaching? How is Josh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's you not being consumed with you. And we know the Bible actually calls us to, to die to you, to die to self. So humility in some ways is a, is a dying to yourself and you and being always consumed about you, 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 you. Paul in the book of Philippians shares more of what it means to be humble. Familiar passage, listen to Philippians 2, 1 through 4, it says this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is, this is humility. This is what it means to not be consumed with yourself all the time. You're actually thinking about other people's interests. You're actually praying for other people and not your needs all the time. Still pray for your needs, yeah. But pray for other needs in the church and people who are in need of whatever that case may be. Then what Paul does is he continues pointing us to the person we are to model humility after, the Lord Jesus. Listen to the rest of verse 5 through 11 of this same chapter of Philippians 2. It says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is that you this evening, Christian? Is, is this what marks your life this evening? Does humility mark your life? This isn't just a word for for. Yeah, for pastors or evangelists or any of, anybody functioning in any of those different leadership roles or capabilities. But it's a word for every Christian. God calls every Christian to be humble, right? We know it, that God opposes the proud, but he does what? Gives what? Grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. We are to be humble servants of Christ. I like how someone else also said it. Character is who you are when no one is looking. It's who you are. Who are you when no one, who am I when no one else is looking? God sees, 
God knows. He knows who you are. When you think no one else is looking or sees. That's character. Being who God has called you to be, a humble, godly, righteous Christian. When no one else sees. And when no one else applauds. God will. God knows. He sees. So is that you? Is that me? By God's grace, I pray that it is. Sorry, all right. We looked at calling, looked at character. Third, Christ as his message, all right? Christ as his message. So look back down with me at verse 8, starting at this grace was given. So it says, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So Paul continues to make it known that it was God who made him a minister and that it was only by God's grace that he was made a minister. Paul says that in this verse, grace was given to him. It was given to him. It wasn't nothing that he earned because he couldn't. And we can't either. We saw this in our passage last week that God gave Paul stewardship over his grace, which is the gospel message. And that even as we've been talking uh, earlier, is that stewardship is something that God has given all of us as Christians. We've all been given stewardship over the gospel to proclaim it and to guard it. So stewardship, once again, is something from God for us or to us for others. So it's from God, it's to us, it's for others. We see that in this verse, don't we? That God's grace was given to Paul to do what? What does it say? It says, preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. So the word unsearchable in other translations may say incalculable. All right, you guys try it with me. Count of three, let's say incalculable, all right? One, two, three. Incalculable. <laughs> let's try it again. That was weak. On one, two, three. Incalculable. I know that's a crazy word. Uh, another word that could be used here is incomprehensible, okay? So the, the definition of the word, straight from Google, of incalculable is too great to be calculated or estimated. So this is the word Paul uses when he's talking about Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ. He's saying, yo, it's too great to be calculated or, or estimated. Like, how do you even comprehend the richness of Christ? It's unsearchable. In other words, it's levels to this. Paul, in reflecting on the riches of Christ, he says that it's too great a truth to be calculated or estimated. The depth and breadth of the gospel is too deep and wide. We talked about this some last week, but the gospel really is something that is, is really deep and wide and that is something that we have not arrived to, that we are constantly, daily growing and understanding and, and, and applying the gospel to our lives in so many different ways. And if we ever get to a point where we feel like, oh, we've got the gospel, um, or we got it figured out, I would, I would caution you. I would caution you because 
The gospel is something that we never outgrow. It's something that we consistently on a daily basis need and that we are still teasing out what that gospel means. What it means, I mean, this is why Paul, I mean, we, we're, this is why we're chopping it up here is that Paul has been teasing out what the gospel means, the implications of bringing men and women from Jews and Gentile backgrounds together. An implication of the gospel is that man, he's been bringing people of all backgrounds, all racial, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic, et cetera, et cetera, together. That's deep. That's why. That's crazy to think about. Of what God has done in the gospel that is unsearchable. And so Job and Paul talk about God's unsearchable ways and wisdom in other places. So listen to Job 5, 9 and 9, 10. And then Romans eleven thirty three 33 says, so this is Job 5, 9. Who does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number? So that's Job talking about God, that he does great things and unsearchable, marvelous things without number. Job 9, 10. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond Numbers, there it is again. And then Paul in Romans eleven thirty three, he says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's ways are not our ways, man. It's, it's unsearchable, it's inscrutable. It's wide, it's deep, it's big. It's amazing. And this is what Paul is teasing out here in this passage. But the point I'm, I'm really wanting to stress this evening is that Paul's message was Christ alone. He preached Christ, right? He says that the unsearchable riches of Christ, that's what he preached. So all of Paul's writings, his preaching and teaching, his evangelism, his apologetics, were consumed with Jesus. He says to the church at Corinth, uh, in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, excuse me, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said he decided to know nothing else but Christ in him crucified. And this family is the message that every pastor, every Christian, every church should be consumed with in our teaching, in our preaching, in our evangelism, et cetera, et cetera. This is why you hear Christ every week in the preaching at CHCC, because it is of most importance. And we need to hear him and see him in the text to get our eyes and our hearts off of the preacher or one another or our circumstances and to get our eyes and hearts on him, knowing that when they are, knowing that when our eyes are on him, man, he can speak to every circumstance and challenge we are facing. Amen? So we need to get our eyes on Christ. So the question is this evening, is Christ central in your Living. Is he central in 
your evangelism? Is he central in your teaching, in my teaching? Is he central? Because he was central in Paul's teaching. And we know that the gospel, that everything from, from the old and when we think about the new, all points to this glorious work of Christ, what he's done on our behalf. So the, the Old Testament is promises made, the New Testament is promises kept. And they were kept in Christ. And they were made and Christ fulfilled them. And this is the central theme of the Bible, the gospel. So it's about the gospel, it's about Jesus. It's about what he has done. And because he has saved us, because he has graced us by giving us life in him, he calls us to center our lives around that same gospel message too. He calls us to center, to live our lives uh, centered on the cross. Remember C.J. Mahaney wrote a book on it called Cross-Centered Life. Remember reading that book when I was uh, early on in my faith and how that just changed my whole perspective on thinking about yeah, Christianity and thinking about what it means to be a disciple. Is that our lives, I mean, Jesus calls us, right? We think about Luke 9, 23, or we think about Luke 14, when we think about the cost of discipleship. What does Jesus call us to? Right? He calls us to die to self, to take up our cross, to bear it, and to then follow him. But something that's crucial about following him, right? And we know this, but um, following him is a daily bearing of that cross. We never let go of the cross. We keep the cross. We bear it. And we follow him by faith, by trust. So continue to center your life on the cross, on Jesus. So not only that, Paul also brought uh, the light of the mystery of God. Uh, he brought that out. He teased that out in this passage as well. Look at verse 9 of chapter 3. He says, and to bring, so he preaches the gospel. He, he talks, tells the Ephesian church to center their lives on Christ, to preach Christ. But then he also says, and let me chop it up. Let me, let me share with you the light of the mystery of God. And so here's in verse 9 of chapter 3, he says, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. This was, this was that God has made Jews and Gentiles one family. This is the mystery of the gospel that had been hidden for ages, now revealed through the gospel. So we've looked at calling, character, Christ as Paul's message. Now let's briefly look at cost. So we looked at some of this last week, so we won't spend a whole lot of time here. But just a brief recap, Paul is in prison as he's writing this. He's, he's in prison for preaching the gospel. So look at uh, verse 1 of, of chapter 3 that we looked at last week. He says, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. 
Now skip up to verse 13 of chapter 3 where we're at. What does it say? So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So last week we talked about this, but here now, preaching the gospel cost Paul his freedom. We learn in other places in scripture that he suffered for the sake of Christ and eventually was killed for the sake of Christ. Talked about this some last week, but just to recap again, I mean, this is what Jesus said would happen to him. Remember in Acts 9 when he was converted? Listen to verse 16, it says, this is Jesus. He says, for I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. I will show him, Paul, how much he will suffer for the sake of my name. And you know what, brothers and sisters in Christ this evening? We aren't exempt from that suffering. We aren't exempt from that persecution. We aren't exempt from death. Listen to what Jesus says here in Matthew 5, 10 through 12, in Paul, in Philippians 1, 29. So here's Jesus. It says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus puts this up on game. He makes it clear that, one, blessed are those. This is the blessed way, not the cursed way. Or This is the blessed way to be persecuted for righteousness sake. And for those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, man, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on, he talks over more, but then he says in verse 12, something key, rejoice and be glad. Now I know when we go through persecution and when we go through trials, a lot of times we ain't trying to rejoice and we ain't trying to be glad in it because it sucks, it's hard, it's bad. But there is an element to it, man, where when we think about Jesus and what he went through, when we think about all the disciples and what they went through, there's an element to it, man, where when we think about the glory that is set before us, and as we talked about even last week, how the disciples of Acts, they, they counted themselves worthy to be able to suffer for the sake of his name. Listen to Paul in Philippians 1, 2, and I, he says this, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. So we see even in these two passages and all throughout scripture, that Christians suffer. Christians are persecuted for the gospel's sake. Things happen to us. So this Christians are only blessed and highly favored or that you won't go through some junk. It's false teaching. It's false teaching. We are blessed in Christ, but that doesn't mean we won't suffer or go through trials. And I want to challenge us. This might sound really crazy. You may have heard it before. But I, I, I want you to see your suffering or trials as a blessing in Christ. And the reason why I want you to see it in that way, because guess what? God uses it to shape you. I know if we went around the room right now, if we listed all the trials that we just experienced this past year, over the last five years, I guarantee you, one of the things that we might say is that, man, you know what? It was hard, but God used it. 
It was tough. But man, like God used it. He used it to shape me. He used it to make me more like his son. And that's what God has been doing. He uses trials. He uses hardships. He uses pain. He uses death. He uses all these different things to glorify himself in it all. But as we're going through it, as we experience it, he uses it to make us more like his son. He uses it to make us more like him. And guess what? As we are being conformed into the image of Christ, as we are in this already but not yet phase, right, of man, like things are, are crazy right now in this time, in this time period, but man, we're, we're gearing up for a time where we'll be with God forever. That's our end goal. That's our reward. Being with him forever. So we go through trials now. We go through persecution now. We go through whatever the things we go through now. I'm not saying we always go through trials. We always are persecuted. We have good days. We have bad days. But man, one day, it'll all just be glory. One day, it'll all just be glory with God in his presence. And that's where we are headed. But I want to encourage us to think about, man, as we're going through those particular trials now, and we, we experience glory now. We experience glory now. We have God now. We'll have him forever once we're with him. So James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this. It says, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And something else, Jesus knows our suffering and can sympathize with us. Hebrews 4.15 tells us this, and Hebrews 12.3-4 also tells us this. It says, uh, in verse 15 of chapter 4 of Hebrews, it says, but we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows our suffering. He knows our suffering. He can sympathize with us. He knows your persecution. He knows your trials. It can sympathize with us. Amen. This is who Jesus is. This is Hebrews 12, 3-4. says, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This is Jesus. That what Jesus went through leading up to the cross and at the cross, in comparison to all of what we have experienced thus far, and what we will experience, it's not even in comparison, for one, but in light of it, God still sees us. He still sympathizes with us. He still provides us grace and strength as we seek to Navigate whatever, whatever those hard times are, whatever those hard seasons are. So then Paul tells the Ephesian Christians uh, to not worry about him, 
to not lose heart or be discouraged. He says, I'm suffering for you. He says it's for their glory. Another translation says they should feel honored that Paul is suffering for them. But in a greater sense, Jesus on the cross suffered for you and me. And in our place, he said, don't worry about me. Don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged, Mom. Don't be discouraged, John. Pilate and the Jews don't know this yet, but they don't have control over me. They're not taking my life. I'm laying it down freely and I will get up again. And it will be for your future glory. So don't be discouraged, brothers and sisters, this evening when we go through different things. God knows, he sees, knows your struggles, and will provide the grace and strength for us to get through it all. Amen? Amen. All right, so sandwiched in between all of this from calling, etc., to the cost is the goal. So what is the goal of all of this? Look back with me at verse 10. What does it read? It says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So Paul says the, the, the reason or the goal, like this, the, the reason why moment of this passage is so that God can show off the church. The goal of it is that he can, so that he can show off the church. The glories of the church are unending. God is making his manifold or multifaceted wisdom known through the church to all people, including the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So scholars believe that the rulers and authorities here refer to good and bad heavenly beings. What this means is, to quote Tony Marita, a scholar, who says, this wisdom is so great that God uses it to proclaim to heavenly beings. His grace and glory are displayed in a diverse people, a many-colored fellowship, a multicultural and multi-ethnic fellowship who have been called, redeemed, forgiven, made alive, and united in Christ. The angelic hosts look on at the reconciling work of Christ, which is the model for the reconciling of the universe when everything in heaven and earth will be brought together in him. So the angels are looking on at this. He, they're looking on at the, the, the work of the church that God has, has done. They're looking on at it with amazement, similar to how 1 Peter 1.12 tells us about that. But the demonic forces look on with fear and trembling. So Paul, right here, he's letting us know about his view of the church he has a high view of the church here. And the whole book of Ephesians displays a high view of the church. So, do we this evening, do we have a high view of the church? And what God is doing through his bride? Do you see this gathering right now displaying the bountiful wisdom of God? This is what God is doing. For all of us, he's displaying the manifold wisdom of God. So now, Pete, in the next verse, verse 11, it says, This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This was all done according to God's purpose before the foundation of the world that he is brought about through his son. 
So God thinks very highly about his church. And it was his plan. And he even sent his son to die for the church. So he planned it. He ordained it. And he sent the son to execute it so perfectly. And when I say church, I'm not referring to the building, right? Although the building is a blessing and, and, and very helpful. I'm really talking about God's people who gather regularly to hear the gospel preach. Who are made up of many different backgrounds, ethnicities, etc., etc. What God has done and is doing through his church is glorious. I'm reminded of the craze song here as we are about to come to a close. I'm reminded of the craze song, The Bride. He, he says here in the hook, he says, yeah, she may look gritty. When her man come back, she gonna look so pretty. She the church. You might see her acting crazy. Be patient with her though, cause she's still God's baby. She the church. Before you diss her, get to know her. Jesus got a thing for her and he died just to show her she the church. She ain't bricks and buildings. She all of God's people, men, women, and children. So this is the church. And this is God's manifold wisdom that is on display through the church. And this is only made possible through Jesus, what he has done on our behalf. And in the next verse, man, we have 24-7 access to the Father through him. Listen to verse 12. You're about to close. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. So this is just encouraging news that 24-7 we can come before God. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in Him. There's never a day that God will say no to you, daughter, you, son. God says yes. He doesn't turn you away. You're invited. There's access. So we looked at God's plan for the pastor and ultimately every person in the church. There's a plan for the church in displaying his wisdom. So may we all be what God desires for us to be from this passage. So as the band comes up, let me close. As we end. Lord Jesus, I thank you for your word. Thank you for, um, yeah, how you're, yeah, how you've made it clear, Lord, that the gospel is to be the central message of our lives, is to be the central message of the church. It's what we are to build our lives on. It's what we are to, what we are to, to, to uh, cherish and hope in, glory in, and then that you're using the church to make the gospel known in the world. And so God, I pray that we as a church would do just that, that we would know that, we would believe that, we would hope in that, and we would trust that in Jesus' name.